read the text and let's uh let's open with prayer and then we'll read the text father lord we give you thanks and praise for this day lord we thank you for uh, the beautiful sunshine lord we thank you for the season of easter where we can celebrate the resurrection of our lord lord we thank you for your church lord in the body here at christ community lord i thank you for calling each of us out of our beds and into worship this morning so lord as we open your word lord we pray father that our our minds and our hearts, Lord, will be uh, focused on what you have inspired here, Lord, and we pray, God, that our worship will continue to be honorable to you. In Christ's name, amen. So hear the word of the Lord from the Revelation to John, chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who, who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. So um, as I was working through this week, I realized that at face value... The book of Revelation doesn't really seem to be uh, a quote-unquote good Easter text, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, especially when considering, right, that, that within church, certain church circles or even certain theological circles, there are multiple viewpoints on how to interpret this letter from, from the Apostle John. But then I also realized that I kind of backed myself into a corner last week when we were uh, in 1 Corinthians. And I did it with two particular comments. So last week we were in 1 Corinthians 15, and in verse 24, I made the comment that one of the major sticking points, and we see this from Paul, right? So this really wasn't a bad comment because this is just straight from Paul. But the major sticking point to the reality of the bodily resurrection of Christ is that the process of ushering in the end times has begun, right? It starts with his resurrection from the dead. Really, it starts with his advent, but we saw from 1 Corinthians 15 that the end will come when he comes back and raises those who are in him. But then secondly, I made a very generalized comment or statement that, that many who talk about the end times regularly seem to either neglect or ignore or forget the resurrection of Christ in their discussions about the end times. And really, that is the key event that starts the whole process of the end. So... I was working through the lectionary this week, and I even had a few conversations with some of you this week, and, and I felt that, well, maybe what the Lord was doing was actually redeeming my haphazardly tossed-out comments, because as you start to read through the book of Revelation, it becomes very apparent that the, 
that the book is actually the perfect Eastertide text because, not because it's apocalyptic, but because the whole letter very intentionally magnifies the worthiness of the bodily resurrected Christ to be praised and glorified and worshipped as God. And so over the coming weeks, we're going we're gonna to look at just a few selections from this challenging letter. We're going to look this morning in chapter 1. Next week we'll look in chapter 5, and then in two weeks we'll look in chapter 7. And we're going to do this as part of our Easter celebration. But I want to approach it in the way that I think John does. And I think he approaches it as a doxology. And so this is not, I did not have one conversation with Connor this week other than to talk about the fact that this was the text I was going to preach from. So the fact that we sang Psalm 150 to the doxology really just kind of fit in beautifully with how the Lord was working things out for today. But the word doxology is one that we're all very familiar with here at Christ Community, right? We sing the doxology at the end of every one of our services. The word itself is the Greek word that just means glory. And so a doxology is really a saying or a song of thanksgiving and praise to God, particularly to the glory of God. And the glory really of the goodness of God's work for his people. So think about what we regularly sing at the end of every service on Sunday. We sing Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, you heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And so with that idea of doxology in mind, keep it in mind over the next few weeks as we look through what these selections from the book of Revelation. But also, think in the language of doxology. Think in the language of praise that gives glory to the triune Godhead. And listen to the text that John gives us here again in verses 4 to 8. So thinking in the language of doxology, look at what he says again. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so... Just reading through this just a second time in just a few short minutes, we we can quickly and easily pick up on the Trinitarian nature of these opening verses of the book of Revelation, especially in how it relates as a doxology, as a hymn of praise. But even still, John uses a few phrases within these four verses that, at least to me, right, they stood out, but they also sound a little weird to our ears because this is a different kind of book. But it sounds a little odd, especially when we think about the nature of the triune God. So just walking through this, let's walk through this opening doxology and try to better understand what John is telling us. So just starting in verse 4, and we'll just make our way through the text, we see that John, he greets the seven churches. And then at the end of verse 4, he also notes that he greets the seven churches by seven spirits who are before the throne of God. Now, if you, if you decide to take this next week and read through Revelation, hang out in chapters 2 and 3 a little bit because... You'll quickly note that John addresses each seven church by name, each of these seven churches by name. And while you might 
note that these, these two chapters really help give us a contextual grasp or a historical grasp on these particular churches. We can't ignore the fact that John stresses the number seven here twice in this one verse. Because seven is a number that is not foreign nor insignificant within all of the Bible. Seven is a very symbolic number in Scripture. Because in Scripture, the number seven represents completeness and it represents totality. So when God completed his creation, he rested on the seventh day, right? And just as God rested from his creation work as an example of the Sabbath rest that he would command in the law, he also rested on the seventh day from his creation work as an image of the rest that we would have in Christ. The author of Hebrews understood this. He notes in chapter 4, he says, Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Because if Joshua had given the conquest generation rest, God would not have spoken of another day to come later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from their works, just as God rested from his. So let us therefore strive to enter God's rest. So historically, we know that there were more than seven local churches in the province of Asia that John understood. John knew as Asia, particularly Asia Minor, at the time he was writing this, this book. But with this use of the number seven, we can understand symbolically that these seven churches are to be representative of the entirety of God's church, of the completeness of the church in Christ Jesus, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One church father understood this. He, know, he wrote that this number, he said that this number signifies the period of the present life so that John is not merely writing to seven individual churches, but he understood that he was giving these writings to all the future ages, even until the end of the world. And so John leans very heavily into this symbolic meaning of the number seven throughout the entire letter. And so with this meaning of the number seven in mind, we come to this other use of the number seven that he gives us in this verse. And he says that there are seven spirits before the throne of God. And at least for me, this is where my ears started to kind of prick up, right? Because I'm like, hang on a minute, because I think, I think about God, right? God is, God is triune. God is Trinity. He's not seven. So, so what does John mean when he talks about these seven spirits? Well, there's two schools of thought both of which I think are quite interesting and helpful, but two schools of thought on how this can be interpreted. First is that these seven spirits are the seven angels who are over the seven churches that will be addressed in chapters 2 and 3. Now we can see how this works, right? Because if you go to chapters 2 and 3, you see very quickly John, when he's commanded to write to the churches, he's commanded to write to the angel over that church. So just for example, chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. You, you see where John is commanded to write to those angels to then give to the churches. And this idea is it's a very Jewish way of thinking. Uh, in, in the Deuterocanonical or apocryphal book of Tobit, we actually read in chapter 12 where one of these angels names himself. This is where we get the angel Raphael. But... This is also a quick little shameless plug for Sunday school, right? So if you didn't come out this morning uh, when Connor started Sunday school on the Deuterocanonical books, uh, come out next week and listen to the audio uh, from, from this morning if you want to kind of catch up. But shameless plug, right? If, if, if you have questions on the usefulness of the apocryphal books in the church or in the Christian life, come out for Sunday school, right? But, but this will be helpful. But, but that's one school of thought, that these seven spirits are really the seven angels who are over the seven churches. So that's one school of thought. And that's fine. But the other one 
is that this is directly related to the Spirit of God himself. So listen again to what he says. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So keeping in mind the symbolism of the number seven within scripture. Seven, again, is a number of completeness. It's a number of totality. So thinking within the framework of a doxology as a praise to God. John is drawing upon this number to point us as his readers to the totality, to the fullness, to the completeness of the person of the Holy Spirit. So let me explain by using other scripture. Right? So in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, Isaiah tells us seven distinct attributes of the Spirit of God that will rest upon the Christ. Isaiah writes this. He says, the Spirit of Yahweh, there's one, will rest upon the Christ or rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom. Two, the spirit of understanding. Three, the spirit of counsel. Four, the spirit of might. Five, a spirit of knowledge. Six, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven, these seven attributes of the spirit rest upon the Christ. But furthermore, with each and every instance within the New Testament that a church or an individual is greeted with the grace and peace of the Lord Like here at the beginning of verse 4, they are always greeted in the name of God, not the name of the apostle, even if he identifies himself. They're not greeted with grace and peace from the apostle. They're greeted in the grace and peace of the Lord and in Christ and in the spirit of God, not the apostle, not a prophet. And so here in verse 4, what we have contained within this doxology at the beginning of Revelation is a greeting to the seven churches in the name of the Father, the one who is and who was and who is to come but also in the name of the Spirit. Because grace and peace always come from God himself. And while we know that the Lord God is one and three and three and one, John intentionally draws upon a symbolic understanding of the number seven to point to the fullness and the completeness of God the Spirit, who as one of the people of the Godhead, one of the persons of the Godhead, contains all divine perfection. But then we also understand that grace and peace come from the Godhead. We have the Father and the Spirit in verse 4. And so moving into verse 5, John's greeting lands on the Son. But as most of the New Testament writers do, John hangs out on the Son quite a bit, right? Because through Christ we understand all of Scripture. And so what John does is he, he doesn't just greet the churches in the name of Jesus Christ the Son, but he offers multiple attributes that point to the worthiness of Jesus to be worshipped as God himself. So I just want to look at each of those attributes just really quickly before we move on. There in verse 5, again, this will help us as we frame a doxological approach to to Revelation. In verse 5, we see again, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He begins by calling Jesus the faithful witness. Now, we understand a witness, right, as one, if you're just thinking regarding a court of law, a witness is one that gives a testimony about something that they have eyewitnessed, something that they have seen. And throughout all of Epiphany and even Lent, we we looked at the Gospel of Luke and how Luke used this idea of two witnesses from Scripture to point us to the reality that Jesus is the Christ. Well, what John is doing here is something very similar, but he does so by stressing that Jesus himself is the perfect faithful witness, the one whose earthly ministry, the one whose crucifixion and resurrection from the dead has publicly testified about God and has given evidence to what God is doing within the world. 
John is telling us that Jesus' witness is and was faithful because the Lord himself completely, was completely faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this faithful witness of the Lord Jesus leads then to four other clarifying attributes that John draws out in these verses. And the next one is there in verse 5 too. He says, Jesus is the, fir- is, is the faithful witness, but he's also the firstborn of the dead. Now, we, we hung out on this a little bit last week in 1 Corinthians. Paul uses the language of first fruits. But like Paul, what John is doing is he, he is encouraging his readers that Jesus, as the firstborn of the dead, is a guarantee of our own resurrection from the dead. Athanasius writes here and he says, Because Christ suffered death for us and abolished it, and since he has risen, we too shall rise from the dead in him and through him. Christ is the firstborn of the dead, but not the only born of the dead. And John understood here when he was writing this, when he was being inspired to write this, that, that many of his readers would face a literal death for their faith in Jesus. There's plenty of believers around the world that face the same today. But Christ Jesus, we understand, has been raised from the dead. He's been raised from the dead as a guarantee that those in him will also be raised from the dead. But there's another distinction within this attribute that I think is very important to note. Being the firstborn of the dead, for John, is a direct reference to Jesus' sovereignty and his rule as king. He tells us that the Lord Jesus has achieved universal sovereignty by his bodily death and by his bodily resurrection. Which leads into that next attribute in verse 5. Which is, as Christ, as the faithful witness, as the firstborn of the dead... As the ruler of kings on earth. And I think it's here that it's important to just take a second and slow down and pause and, and remember what kind of book the book of Revelation is, right? It's, it's an apocalyptic letter, but it's also a prophetic letter. And understanding this helps us to realize that John isn't pulling these attributes out of thin air. He's not making them up because he was looking around and just saw something that inspired him, right? He, he's not pulling them out of thin air. As, as he is writing, as he is being Pulled along by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is helping to bring to mind the full counsel of all of Scripture. And John draws upon other prophetic and apocalyptic literature from the Bible as he's writing this letter. And in this case, he's drawing upon Daniel, specifically chapter 2, verse 44, which reads this. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. And so by John using this phrase, kings of the earth, ruler of the kings of the earth, he is referring to Jesus' status as the rightful and ultimate king that would come from the line of David, whose reign and rule is soon to be accomplished and fulfilled. When the end comes, we read last week in 1 Corinthians 15, when the end comes and Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Because of his bodily resurrection from the dead, Jesus' rule and reign as the promised king in the line of David has been established. But then he gives us another attribute in this verse, which is Christ as the faithful witness. He, has loved, he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And this statement really is the basic beginnings of the gospel, right? When we're talking about the gospel of Christ, we we talk to people about the fact that Christ has died for their sins and has risen from the grave. And some of your translations might read, 
that Jesus has loved, he loves us and has washed us from our sins by his blood. And, and I thought this was really interesting because translating it as washed us really helps us in our understanding of how specifically in baptism we are washed in Christ. We are washed by his blood. We even proclaim this in the creed every week. But both translations, I think, are right in their way of thinking. But interestingly, though, the Greek word that John uses here is better translated as freed us, like we have in our bulletins, because this word can also mean to untie or to loose from bonds. And so what John is telling us very directly is that the ongoing, constant, undying covenant love of God, the hesed of Jesus, led to his work of freeing us from our sins by loosing the bonds of our sins, by his dying and by his rising. But then there's a final attribute that John writes for us here in these four verses. But God himself speaks it. And he speaks it in verse 8. And it directly attributes the eternality of God with the person of Christ. Listen to what John writes in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty We have already seen this exact same statement in verse 4 in reference to God the Father. But Jesus himself says this about himself at the end of this letter in chapter 22, verse 13, where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And this attribute speaks directly to the divinity of Jesus as God. If only God can be classified as the one who is, was, and is to come, and if Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, then Jesus is God. This is what John is telling us. Athanasius agrees here. He writes this. He says, The Godhead of the fathers is also the sons, and it is indivisible. And since they are one, and the Godhead itself is one, the same things are said of the Son which are said of the Father. Jesus is God. This is exactly what John is pointing us to. And that's just the greeting, right? But he's not even done with this doxology that he's framing the whole letter of Revelation in. That's just the greeting. He goes on then, and continuing within this framework of a doxology, he goes on and notes in verse 6 that Christians have a new identity in Christ. And he tells us how it relates really to our roles within the kingdom of God. He says, by his bodily resurrection from the dead, Jesus gives believers a new identity with a two-part vocation. Listen to what he says. And and again, we'll read the latter half of verse 5, but into verse 6. He says, to Christ, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he's done something. He's made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. So by loosing the bonds of our sins by shedding his blood on the cross and by his bodily resurrection from the dead, the Lord Jesus has appointed those who are in him as a kingdom, and he has made them priests to God. Peter picks up on this exact same theme in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you, church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession." Now, this idea of the theology of priesthood has been a topic of extreme interest, I think, for quite a few people here at Christ Community for a while. And quite honestly, both of these identification markers, the church being a kingdom and the church being 
a kingdom of priests. These are sermons within themselves. And so really, for the sake of time, we can't dive too deeply into them, but we do have to talk about them at least for a minute because it helps inform how John, what John will write in the next two texts that we'll look at over the next few weeks. And so we see here that those in Christ Jesus, we are a kingdom. And this theme, not only for John, but for all of Scripture, this goes all the way back to Exodus 19, where the Lord God tells Israel, he says, he tells Israel through Moses, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasure possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so this same promise has now been extended forward to those who are in Christ because of Christ. Those who are chosen by God are a community that exists under the watch care of God and who benefit from God's rule. While at the same time, that community then turns around and appropriately not only gives praise to God, but represents God to the wider world. And so the job of a priest is to offer service to God and to offer service to God's people while also being a faithful witness of God to the world. This was the role that the nation of Israel was appointed and commanded to fulfill under the old covenant. And then it continues now under the new covenant with the new Israel under Christ Jesus. In Christ... The church is a kingdom to God with Christ as our king. And with Christ as our great high priest, the church becomes fellow priest to God the Father in order to offer service to God and to proclaim God to the world. In Christ Jesus, we are given a new vocation. We're given a new work. And in our work, our role is to offer right worship and praise in Christ to God through the Spirit. To point to the work that has been accomplished by the bodily death and the bodily resurrection of Christ. The entirety of our vocation as a nation of priests becomes a doxology to the glory and the dominion of Christ. As John says here, forever and ever. Amen. But that's our role. And then finally, though, he tells us in verse 7, this doxology of praise reminds us that Christ will return. Look again at verse 7, and, and then we'll come forward and we'll come to the table. He says this, Behold, Christ is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And this word behold that he begins the verse with is, is written in, in a specific tone. It's written in an emphatic tone, which for us really means that what John is doing is he's trying to get our attention, right? He's saying, he's saying, pay attention to what I'm about to say because it's not only true, but it's unconditionally true. This is as true as truth gets. And he says, behold, Christ is coming and he's coming with the clouds. And as you make your way through the letter, you see this, this coming of Christ will be culminated toward the end. But we see John, again, he's drawing upon the prophet Daniel one more time. And this time it's in chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel writes this. He says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. But John is also remembering Jesus says this exact same thing about himself in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
But take particular note of the specific words that John uses here in this verse. He says, Every eye will see Christ when he returns. Even those who pierced him are going to be able to see him when he returns with the clouds and power and glory. He says that all of the tribes of the earth will see him and they will wail on account of his return. They will mourn, as Jesus says in Matthew 24. All of these phrases very intentionally point again to the reality of the bodily resurrection of Christ. One of the fathers notes here, and he says this, he says, you, Church, you need to hold most firmly and never doubt that the Word made flesh always has the same truly human flesh with which God the Word was born of the Virgin. And then he goes on. He says, he says that same flesh with which he was crucified and died, the same flesh with which he rose and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, is the exact same flesh with which he will come and judge the living and the dead. Jesus rose in a body and will return in a body. This is what John is giving us here. He says, every eye will see him and they will wail. They will mourn. They will wail in lamentation. They will wail in repentance. They will wail because of their rebellion against the Alpha and the Omega. And they will mourn because the righteous judge of the universe has returned to render his judgment against all who are not in him. This is why they will wail. But he also tells us, he says, all will wail on account of him. That means those of us who are in him will also wail. But our mourning will be different. Or it will be wailing, it won't be mourning. He says, we too will wail because our final redemption is upon us. Jesus tells us in Luke 21, he says, when these things take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Each and every aspect of this doxology is vital to how we approach the book of Revelation, as well as our worship. Because not only are we to look forward to the second advent of Christ, but even now as we continue to celebrate his bodily resurrection from the dead. And we should celebrate it with a hymn of praise on our lips. We should celebrate it with a doxology. And so as we come to the table this morning, as we close in a moment with the doxology, let's simply give praise to God. And let's... Follow the example of the Lord Jesus and be a faithful witness for the work that God has done and the work that God is doing and the work that God will do. And so blessed are those who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. But even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.